Get your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 23. Over the course of the last couple of months, we've been marching through the book of Joshua. If you have been here through that, I trust that you can identify some onward progress because the direction of the Christian life is onward. But no matter how much progress you've made, no matter how many steps you've taken onward, did you know you're only one step away from going backward. And as we get to the last couple of chapters of Joshua, Joshua wants to prevent us from going backward. And I was, as I was thinking about going backward, I couldn't help but think about my very first car. How many of you remember your very first car and you were ashamed of your very first car? How many of you have a, a, had a car you're, you're totally ashamed of? You felt like, I'm not quite sure I'm ever going to get to the destination. Well, um, that was not the case for me. My very first car was a 1967 Mustang that my father bought for $400. And it was shameful when he brought it home, but it was not shameful after he had spent about six months in the garage with it. That was my car. And um, the, there was only one problem with the Mustang. Um, um, it, was a, it was a standard transmission. How many of you know how to drive a standard transmission? Okay. Now, you understand, it, it, and it was a three-speed on the floor here. And um, my, ca my car, I had to park the car in the driveway. The driveway had a slope to it. And so the only problem with my car is that it didn't have an emergency brake that worked. Okay. So when you're parked on a hill and it's a standard transmission, this was the routine I had to go through every morning to start the car. Now, it was an older car. It had 350 horsepower. It would go, but it was a little hard to start. It needed some gas, which required this foot on the accelerator. But in order to start the car, you have to have this foot on the clutch, right? For those of you that don't know, a standard transmission car has three pedals. And the one in the middle is the brake. And so I only had two feet. I had three pedals that needed my attention. So it was a constant going back and forth like this. I always started out the morning trying to get the negotiation right between the accelerator, the clutch, and the brake because the, the emergency brake didn't work. So every time I started my car, I started to grow backward as I'm starting the car. Now, going backward is the result of not having a good emergency break. We're going to see two emergency breaks in this story from Joshua chapter 23 this morning because he's trying to prevent us from going backward. No matter how many steps you've taken onward, you're only one step away from going backward. Here's what we're going to learn. Nothing halts onward progress faster than backward gods. And as you fill in that blank, make sure you put a little g when you are writing out the word God. Now I realize we live in a culture where philosophy, philosophers and scientists and educators will tell us that there is no God. How many of you have gotten a little pressure, a little pushback from people that believe that? Well, all you have to do is take a quick glance at the culture to disprove that real quick. Because there has never been a time where there have been more gods and more worship going on than at any other time. There are 
plenty of gods for you to choose from. The question is not, do you believe in God? The question is, which God do you believe in? There is plenty of competition for your worship. There are gods that will invite you to come to their churches and bow down and give you sacrifices. We're going to see that here from Joshua chapter 23. We're going to go through all 16 verses of that chapter. Here's the first thought we're going to get from the text. Remember the superior goodness of your real God. That's the first emergency break that's going to prevent us from going backward. Here we are in chapter 23. These people have come so far. Let's begin reading in verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Now, stop right there. Real quick, do you see the white space in your Bible between the end of chapter 22? And the beginning of chapter 23, that represents about 25 years, okay? A lot of time passed between chapter 22 and chapter 23. Remember back in 22, we looked at the maps and those 12 tribes of Israel went into their designated places. And so for these 25 years, they're probably building some houses and establishing community and planting churches and, and, uh, and raising children, having babies, and they're starting to stabilize a little bit. There's a little more security, a little more stability in the culture. Joshua, however, is getting old. At this point, he's probably well into his 90s. And he realizes he's only probably got a few days left. And so he decides to preach his own funeral before he dies. There's some things he wants to say. After all the onward progress... He's afraid they're going to go backward, and so he says this in verse 2. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads and judges and officers, all the leaders, elders, officers, judges, and he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. How many of you can identify with that statement? All right, great. He says, I'm old. Verse 3 says, you have seen all all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain. Underline the word remain there in verse 4. Do you know what that tells us? There's more fighting to be done. There are more battles and wars to be waged. Their fighting days are not over. Their enemies are not completely annihilated. It says, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so before he gives them the caution about what is ahead of them, he wants them to remember what God has done for them in the past. The greatest prevention from drifting backward is to remember the goodness of God and what he has done for you. The Lord has fought for you. Can you look back at some battles? 
Can you look back at some territory that's been gained as a result of the goodness of the Lord bringing you from where you were in bondage, in slavery, in loneliness, in fear, in shame, in guilt, and see how the Lord has brought you to a better place? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Can you look at some battles that the Lord has waged for you? Can you remember some seasons where it looked absolutely hopeless? Can you remember even maybe some physical pain and financial stress you were under and somehow, maybe unexplainably, the Lord has done something to bring you out of that to a better place? Isn't it great listening to those testimonies this morning? What are they saying? The Lord has brought me out of my sin, out of my shame, out of my condemnation, and given me the hope of a promised future. And so what God wants us to do, and what I would even encourage you to do as the leaders of your small group or the leaders of your family, maybe even gather around at lunch today and take time to enumerate specific things that the Lord has done to show how good He has been to you. Don't take it for granted. Remember five years ago where we were as a family? Remember three days ago how depressed we were? And look how good the Lord has been to us. It's so important that we take time to look back on God's goodness. And you know what one of the greatest threats is for us falling prey to worshiping backward gods? It's this. It's to see the perceived bad things in our lives as somehow the absence of the goodness of God. Even through the trials, even through the sickness, even through getting old, even through losing things that we love, it is important for us to realize that no matter what I face, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult the trials, God is good. And God is in control. If the devil can get you to question the goodness of God, he will get your heart looking for a replacement God. And that's what Joshua wants them to prevent, to be prevented from doing. He wants them to remember the goodness of God. So that's the first emergency break. Here's the second emergency break that will keep us from moving backward. Reject the inferior promises of backward gods. Reject the inferior promises of backward gods. Now, I know you're probably wondering, why did you use the word backward gods? What are you talking about? Do you know what the very first commandment is in the list of 10? What is it? You shall have no other gods before me. And so there is a temptation that has always been there and will always be there, even if you have, have committed your life to the true and the living God through Jesus Christ, His Son. There is always a temptation for our hearts to veer off and give worship to counterfeit false gods. In the Bible, they're called idols. 
And one of the greatest sins that we can commit against the Lord is idolatry. And as soon as you do that, you start going backwards. And so we have to reject the inferior promises of these backward gods. Look at verse 6. Joshua says, therefore, be very strong. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember the first chapter of Joshua? God was calling him to lead these people. And what did God say? Only be very strong and courageous. And so here Joshua is at the last chapter of his life. And he's passing this baton of strength and courage to the next generation of leaders. And he's so concerned they're going to drop the baton. Be very strong, he says, to keep and to do all that is written in the book. The written revelation of the will and the ways of God is the emergency break that will keep us from moving backward. He says, don't let your face get out of the book. The moment you stop paying attention to the book, the moment that you let the pastor on Sunday morning do all of the Bible study for you is the moment where you're going to move backwards on Monday. You got to keep your face in the book. Only be strong to keep all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. At that time, the Bible was five books. The first five books you have in your Bible is all they had at that point. And it says, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left. Apparently, they had presidential politics back in those days, too. You had people on the right, you had people on the left. Um, but it's so important. God wants us headed down the straight and narrow. But it's possible for you to end up in the ditch on the right or the ditch on the left. Listen, the devil doesn't care which side you veer into as long as he gets you in a ditch. Last Sunday afternoon, our family went up to Lake Michigan, enjoyed the day. On the drive home, um, I was driving and I noticed there was something on my foot. I had flip-flops on. I'm driving, and I look down, and there's a tick on my toe. Now, I've got friends that have Lyme disease. I'm not interested in having Lyme disease, and these little critters carry that thing, and I'm thinking, if that thing bites me, I may get something I don't want. So, I calmly just reached down and flicked the tick off of my toe on to the floorboard of the car and kept driving. About five minutes later, I looked down and he's back on my toe. So I kind of kick him and I try to kill him and I don't know where he went and he's gone. Well, five minutes later, I'm still driving and I looked down, he's there again and he's making onward progress. Now, this time I'm a little freaked out, and I, I kind of lost my mind for about five seconds. I don't know why I did this. I cannot explain to you this. But while I'm driving, I mean, I'm looking down, and we're kind of veering over the center line on this side. And, you know, Andrea hits me, and she's, you know, pretty soon I'm looking down, and we're kind of going into the ditch on this side, and the car's kind of going back and forth. And, and I don't know what happened, but I, the thing is making pro I'm, I reached down, I grabbed the gear shift, and I slammed it into park. We're going about 60 miles an hour. Well, I gathered myself and I'm like, that's not good. So I pulled it and I put it in reverse. 
And I'm like, wait, this is, so finally I just jerked it off the side of the road and I finally just got out and I, I smashed that tick. I don't know if there's any long-term damage done to my vehicle yet. I looked for transmission fluid underneath it. I think it's going to be okay, but you do some really stupid things when you feel like you're under attack, right? Even by something so small as a little tick. My question for you is this. What is it that has caused you to run it off the road into the ditch on the right or the ditch on the left? I don't know about you, I have friends that used to attend this church, they used to sing the praises, they used to pray the prayers, they used to be all into small groups and discipleship and worship and praise, and unfortunately, there's a, there's a trail of bodies that are in the ditch, either on the right or to the left. How do you get to the ditch on the right? Well, if we think about that in, in terms of like really conservative, you can be so hyper-conservative how do you do that? It's when you start adding words to the book. And you think that somehow the Bible's not sufficient, so you just need to add a couple more rules, a couple more regulations, and begin to devise religious schemes and systems. And pretty soon you've added to something that God has said. Oh, you're so super conservative. Yeah, you're in the ditch on the right. Some of you say, I used to attend a church like that. They used to have so many rules and regulations. I'm so, I'm so glad I don't go to those rule-oriented churches anymore. No, your temptation is to end up in the ditch on the left and not take every word of God seriously. And if you begin to justify why this verse isn't quite applicable to today, and then pretty soon you're going to end up in the ditch on the left. The devil doesn't care which ditch he gets you in as long as he stops you from moving onward. And Joshua says, you've got to reject those inferior promises. Look at verse 7. That you may not mix. Everybody underline the word mix in verse 7. That you may not mix these nations remaining among you or make mention of their, the names of their gods with little g's or swear by them, or serve them, or bow to them. Do you see the word mix there in uh, verse 7? It reminds me of, the, of a process that happens almost every day of the week in our house. I bought my wife a Christmas present um, this past Christmas. It was a ninja blender. I mean, you talk about horsepower. This thing will grind up anything. And Andrea knows that my favorite thing is not eating spinach or anything else that's healthy for you. <laughs> but she knows if she can pack enough stuff in that blender and then throw in things that I like, like bananas and blueberries and strawberries and stuff, that somehow she can get me to drink what's in there. And it'll be a healthy thing for me. Well, do you know what counterfeit gods do? Counterfeit gods, backward gods, never demand your exclusive worship. All they want to do is get in the mix. They just want to be one of the gods that you worship. And if they can just 
peel off a percentage of your heart that belongs exclusively to God, they will be satisfied. Joshua says, do not even mix with them. The truth of the matter is, you've all come to worship. I mean, you've come to worship the true and the living God. We've done that. We're doing that right now. But some of us have spent our week mixing in a little worship of some backward gods. What is a god? I mean, what is the definition? What does God do? Every god wants the same thing from you, including Jehovah God. What does this God want? Well, a God is any power that seeks these five things. God wants to define your identity. And whatever you choose to define your identity will reveal who your God really is. We open our Bibles when we read about what God says about us. And if you worship the true and the living God, you nod your head and say, yes, I'm exactly who God says I am. And the first thing God says that I am is a dirty, rotten sinner in need of a wonderful Savior. And if by repentance and faith I've embraced Christ as my Savior, I am now a forgiven, dirty, rotten sinner that has hope of heaven one day. I can live victorious over sin. I can believe that God is fighting for me, and I am who God says I am. Another thing we read when we open our Bibles, even on the first page, God tells us some things about who we are as human beings. God says he made them male and female. And so if you worship the God of the Bible... You open the Bible and you realize my gender is not something I get to select. It's something that is defined or assigned. Now, gender confusion is a real thing. It's a real thing for some people in this room. If the truth were known, there's some people in here that at times you don't quite understand it, you can't explain it, you want to obey God, you want to believe this God, you want to worship this God, and you read the Bible and it says you're male, but sometimes you don't feel male. But gender identity is really not about gender. Gender identity is about worship. Whoever you choose to worship gets to decide my identity. And so with all the conversations going on about gender identity and sexual orientation, if we worship and serve the true and the living God who wrote a book and has given us an understanding of our identity, what we have to do is this. No matter how I feel or what I think, if I worship the true and the living God, I understand and I accept the assignment or the identity that God has given to me. Unless your God is sex. Or unless your God is you. And because you think you get to set the rules, 
somehow you get to assign self-selected gender identity. Now, if you struggle with gender identity, we're here to love you and help you and accept you, but also point you to the fact that it is a heart of worship that really is the determining factor on what you believe about yourself. Our culture has opened the door to just say everybody gets to decide for themselves because we no longer accept the God of the Bible as the God who defines our identity. A God is a God that wants to govern your autonomy. You know what autonomy is? Autonomy is your freedom to choose whatever you want to do and to be. And as Americans and as a country of, uh, that, that values freedom, you, you are autonomous to a degree about what you get to do. But whoever your God is, is a God that actually will put boundaries on your personal freedom. If you worship and serve the true and the living God, He's given you some boundaries. There are Ten Commandments. There are teachings of Jesus. There are attitudes and virtues and values that we're to accept. But if you reject the God of the Bible, that doesn't mean that you are self-autonomous. That means you're just going to select another God that's going to give you boundaries. You say, I don't do that. Yes, you do. If your God is your career, then your boss is going to govern your autonomy. If your God is intellect and education, your professors are going to govern your autonomy because they're going to say, here's what you have to do to get the grade, and here's how many words have to be on the paper, and I'm going to mark it up, and you're going to change it. Someone's going to govern your autonomy because that's what a God does. Now, for some people, their God is personal freedom, personal um, pleasure and self-discovery. And so do you know what they do? They're bound, their freedom is bound and freedom is governed by their appetites. And so if their God is a Krispy Kreme donut, their freedom to be skinny is going to be sacrificed. Do you get that? Because every God requires a sacrifice. He wants to govern your autonomy. And whatever God you select is going to want to receive your worship. Now, you say, worship, I don't worship any God. Listen, worship is nothing more than assigning worth to someone or something. When we come and we worship Jesus Christ, what we're saying is you are the highest and the greatest. You are, of the, you are worthy of my worship. Any other God wants you to tell him or her or it how much it's worth to you. Now, even if you are an atheist, you've got to admit that inside of you is a heart that worships. And the reason that's true is because God created your heart to do only one thing. God created your heart to worship. Your heart is a worship factory. It can't help not work. And it can't help not worship. It's a worship factory, and all day long it works, it generates, it produces worship. This little worship factory, just poofs of worship come out all over the place. And if it doesn't choose to worship the true and the living God, 
it's going to find something else to worship. But mark it down, inside of you is a heart that worships. It can go after all kinds of other things, but your heart is a worship factory. If it chooses not to worship God, it will find another God to worship. And that little heart, it likes variety, and it likes freedom to choose, but it is not free to choose not to worship. It will worship. A God is a God that wants to complete your happiness. And that's the promises that gods with little g's make. Think about money. Boy, if I could just get a little more money, I would be happy. If I could just have a bigger house or a nicer car. And so often those things become what we worship. Or maybe it's achievement or acclaim or career or position. For those of you that are young, probably you're thinking, if I could just get into that crowd, if I could just get this person to like me or notice me or date me, I would be happy. And you've turned that person into a god. Or it could be beauty or fashion or brains. You're not pretty, but you're smart. And so you feed that worship through what your brain can do or all kinds of other different gods. But Everything that promises personal happiness is a God. And then finally here, a God is any power that seeks to secure my future. So a retirement account or a vacation house. When your security and your purpose and your value is dependent upon anyone else, do you know what we call that? We call that codependency. When your happiness and your value is dependent upon another person. But you know what the Bible calls it? Idolatry. We think if we can just get that relationship secure, everything will be great. Now look at this list. Isn't this everything that Jesus promises us? He invites you to come and worship him. And he says, if you will come and worship me, what that means is I'll define your identity. I'm going to govern your autonomy I'm going to receive your worship. I'm going to complete your happiness. I'm going to secure your future. But if you choose not to worship Jesus, you will go find some other God that promises to do all those things. The problem is you will be sadly disappointed. They will simply not satisfy. Backward gods possess deceptive power. I want you to see it here in verse 12. For if you turn back, they're going backward. Joshua doesn't want them to go backward, but if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, underline the word marriages in verse 12, if you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be four things, a snare, a trap, a whip, for your sides, and thorns for your eyes. Ooh. Until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Do you see the word marriages in verse 12? Does that surprise you? Isn't marriage a good thing? Now, guys... Um, I just gave you a great opening right there, and you totally whiffed on it. Would you like another run at that? Okay, let's try that again, all right? Isn't marriage a good thing? 
There you go, guys. Don't miss that next time, okay? That was like a whiff right there. I set you up and you blew it. Marriage is a good thing. The Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. There you go, guys. You're getting with the program now. So why would Joshua warn these guys in Israel, be careful who you marry? You know what he knew? And do you know what every person in this room knows? And what God knows? The greatest threat to you loving God is that you would love someone else stronger. Marriage is a good thing, but it must never become a God thing. How many of you are single? Raise your hand. All the singles? Singles, raise your hand. We can keep it in the air. I mean, people are going to look around right now. All right. Do you know what God would say to you this morning? Be careful who you allow your heart to love. Have you ever seen these dating services, these online dating services like eHarmony? Have you seen those? I will not ask how many of you have an account, but (laughs) it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It didn't exist when Andrea and I were around. Now, Andrea and I got married in like 1994, and uh, I got to tell you, if we had filled out profiles on eHarmony, we never would have been matched together, okay? What do they, they promise to match you against 23 dimensions of compatibility. I got to tell you, Andrew and I know each other well enough now to know there would have only been one area of compatibility that we would have been matched in, but it, it's the most important area, right? Listen, if you are not spiritually compatible, If you are not worshiping and loving the same God at the same level, it doesn't matter if you are compatible in every other area. Your hearts will be torn apart. And listen, it doesn't matter how many areas you're incompatible in. If you worship and love the same God, you're going to make it. It's the only thing that keeps Andrea married to me. She's like, dude, you, you don't... I don't even like spinach. I mean, how can I even stay married to a guy like you? But And there's, a, there's 22 other ways where we're just completely opposite. But it's our worship and love of the same God that keeps us. We're just kind of running as hard as we can after Jesus. We keep looking over there. You're still keeping pace, right? Yeah, okay, we're, we're going to go. We're just moving the same direction, right? We're going to end up at the same place. I wish, I, had, I wish you could sit in my office and listen to the heartbroken men and women who didn't get this right. And now they're dealing with a person who has no love for their God. And yet, they're in covenant together through marriage. But because they're not spiritually compatible, it's making everything else difficult. God knows that our hearts are love factories. We were created to love and to be loved. And if we are not careful about who we choose our hearts to love, it will, uh, it will allow our hearts to drift away from 
God. You know what he's saying in, in, in verse 12? He's giving us one example of a place where we worship. You know, there are houses of worship other than churches. If you worship food, your house of worship is a restaurant. If you worship beauty, fashion, and material things and technology, your place of worship is a mall. If you worship sports, your place of worship is a stadium. If you worship film and entertainment, your place of worship is a screen, whether it's 40 feet long or four inches long, it's a place of worship. And all day long we sit in these houses of worship and sometimes we don't even know there's worship that is misdirected. And even within a love relationship, within a marriage, Dating, sex, and marriage can become places of worship that will pull your heart away from the true and the living God. And Joshua is looking at the 17-year-olds in Israel and say, don't do it! Marry girls in our youth group! That's what he's saying. Now, if you don't think this is happening, let me show you how deceptive this power is. Last year, I was driving along, and I was playing with the buttons on the radio, and um, this song came on, and I'm listening to it, and it, I'm intrigued by it. I'm leaning in. It's talking about going to church. I'm like, I like to go to church. Am I on a Christian radio station here? And pretty soon it's so, I'm all like singing along, take me to church. This is all, wow. Maybe, maybe we get Micah to do this one, you know, and we could, we could worship. A, oh, so you, do you know this song? It's a guy named Hozier. Here's how the first verse goes. My lover's got humor. She's the giggle at a funeral, knows everybody's disapproval. I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, he's casting doubt on whether or not God actually has spoken. We believe he has. But he says if the heavens ever did speak, she is the last true mouthpiece. Do you know what he's saying? She's the preacher. She's the evangelist. And I want to listen to her. And then he says this, every Sunday's getting more bleak, a fresh poison each week. What's he talking about? He's talking about the time that he has actually spent in church. Apparently, he has spent time in a church that was not preaching the gospel and not giving hope and not preaching a gospel that, that gives purpose and meaning and life and value and forgiveness of sin. And so because he didn't get it there, do you know what? He started looking for a different church, a different place to worship. It goes on. Here's what he heard at his church. We were born sick. Now, you're going to hear that here too. That's true. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. But God wants to cleanse you and transform you and give you power to live a life of meaning and purpose. And so he says, we were born sick. You heard them say it. My church offers no absolutes, no rules, no regulations, no commandments. She tells me, worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. Command me to be well. Amen. 
Amen. You, now, now listen, let me show you how deceptive this is. Some of you have sung this song on the way to this church without discernment to understand that there is a God of sex, dating, and relationships that wants to divert your heart from the true and the living God. And you're waiting for the place of a different kind of worship. He says, take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins. You can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God with a little g. Let me give you my life. And he accurately diagnoses what every God wants. God wants your heart. God wants your sacrifice. God wants your life. But understand this, backward gods will take what you once possessed. Look down at verse 16. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and you serve other gods and bow down to them, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He's not angry because he demands something you can't give. He's angry because you won't come to him to get what you need. Our God is a jealous God. He created you so that you would exclusively give your love, your heart, and your worship to Him. But when you start giving that which God wants, it creates anger in His heart. And it says, His anger will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. God has been so good to give you joy and peace and stability and value and worth. And when you start giving it to other gods, do you know what you do? You forfeit all of it. You forfeit all of the onward progress. You forfeit all of the good things that he wants you to have. How do you prevent that? Look back up at verse 8. It gives us the diagnosis. How do you prevent from moving backward? Here is the emergency break. You shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. For the Lord is driven out before you great and strong nations. As you, uh, and as for you, no man will be able to stand before you this day. One man of you puts a to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. It's all about the direction of your love. And Joshua stands before his people. Remember, he's giving this funeral talk to the leaders, to the elders in Israel. Did you know at Harvest we have some people like that? The leadership that God has raised up in our church has the same heart for us that Joshua had for the people of Israel. And we actually do call them elders. In the New Testament, the word elders is equivalent with overseers and pastors and and at harvest there are 
There are seven men that make up our elder team. I'm an elder. Uh, Pastor Nathan is an elder. And then five other men from our congregation, just laymen, that love the Lord God with all of their heart, and yet they have stepped into a position of leadership to protect our church. You know what the responsibility of an elder is at Harvest? Three things. It is doctrine, direction, and discipline. Doctrine, we want to protect ourselves from false worship and false gods. Direction, we want to move onward in the direction and at the pace God leads. And then discipline, because sometimes we have some people stray into ditches and we have to go get them out and bring them back. That's what an elder does at our church. And in recent days, we've realized we we need to strengthen our team. We need to add some people to our elder team. And so we've actually been observing and looking and having a lot of great conversations with men in our church that we believe might serve as elders. And we have picked two men that we want to introduce to you today. I'm going to ask uh, Rick Wallace and his wife, Linda, to come up and join me on the platform. And I'm going to ask Greg Veit and his wife, Angie, to come up here on the platform.